0: If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John chapter 6, and we're kind of taking our time a little bit through this famous discourse of Jesus being the bread of life. We kind of introduced it a little bit last week. We're in it today, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you, I only got through the first two of the three major points of the sermon, and uh, so we're going to be here for a little while. There's so much content, so many good things, and we don't want to just run through this important discourse or sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ and how He is the bread of life. In many ways, uh, the, the, uh, the, the teachings of Christ on this subject starts in verses 22 and runs to the end of the chapter. If you'll remember, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. This is after Jesus walked on the water that, uh, that he gets into this discussion with the crowd about comparing the manna of heaven and the true bread who came down from heaven, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're in John, again, chapter 6, and we'll just be looking at verses 35 through 40, and we'll probably continue the the later part of this sermon uh, next week. But here's what we read. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out." Father, thank You for the opportunity to dive into Your Word again this week as we heard great uh, music and songs that have pointed our hearts toward heaven, as we've uh, heard the the reading of Scripture, as we've uh, just given to You out of the abundance that You've given to us. Help us at this moment, in this message, to be confronted with the truth that Jesus is the bread of life and what that means for us and how that should change us And how it's only in Christ that we can be filled and satisfied. So be exalted today in this message as we look really at the message of Christ, the true bread from heaven. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, the Gospel of John contains seven I am statements. And this is the first of the seven. And in this statement here in the Gospel of John, as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I want us to just kind of stop for a moment and meditate on this incredible claim. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And here, the Lord Jesus places himself before us under the figure of bread. This emblem is beautifully significant. And like all other comparisons in Scripture, this one calls for a prolonged and careful meditation. As I was prepping this sermon this week, I've enjoyed so much reading A.W. Pink's commentary on the Gospel of John, and he made some simple and yet profound observations about this analogy of Jesus being the bread. Allow me to share some things that I learned as I read him, and I kind of mixed a few of my own thoughts in there as well, but here's what he wrote. He said, you need to spend a little time meditating on the fact that Jesus is the bread of heaven for these reasons. First, Bread is a necessary food. Unlike many other parts of our diet, which are more or less accessories or luxuries, bread is essential to our very existence. Bread is the food that the human race cannot do without. There are other things placed upon our tables that we can go without, but not without bread. Let us learn the lesson well. Without Christ, we will perish. Without Christ, we will be malnourished. Without Christ, we will starve. There is no spiritual life or health apart from the bread of God. Second, bread is a food that is suited for all. There are many people who cannot eat sweets and others who are unable to digest meats, I added. And there are some who have a gluten allergy and can't eat bread. Right. But somehow our culture has made a way around that to where we can still have bread, even if you have a gluten allergy, though it's not as good. Right. But the point being, the point being is that in the course of human history, bread has certainly been a staple diet and the physical body may retain its life for a time without bread, but it will be sickly and soon sink into the grave. Bread, then, is adapted to us all. It is the food of both the prince and the pauper. It is the food of the refined and of the rugged. It is the staple food in every culture and in every country. And so it is with Christ. He is able to save and satisfy every class of sinners, the high life and the low life, the educated and the illiterate, the rich and the poor, All need the bread of life. Third, bread is a daily food. There are some types of food that we eat only on occasion, thinking about turkey and dressing and whatever it is that you also maybe eat on Christmas. But there are other foods that you eat virtually every day of your life. And so it is spiritually If the Christian fails to eat the bread of heaven on a daily basis, he will go hungry. Or if the Christian starts to substitute for bread other forms of religion or conferences or Christian books or external religious excitement or the glare and glitter of modern Christianity, he will be weak and sickly. It is the failure to read the Word of God on a daily basis and to meditate on the glories of Christ and his gospel, which leads to spiritual apathy and starvation. Feeble Christianity needs not more restaurants, but rather the true rest of Christ. Fourth, bread is a satisfying food. We quickly tire of other parts of our diet, but not so with bread. Bread is a staple and a standard substance which we must use and depend on for the span of, of our lives. And does not the analogy hold good again spiritually? How often have we turned aside to other things only to find them to be but empty fillers, lacking true nourishment and fulfillment to our souls? How many times have we tried in vain to fill our stomachs with the entertainment of this world only to find that it is all really a waste of time? Nothing but the bread of life can truly be satisfy. Fifth, let us note the process through which bread passes before it becomes food. It springs up from the ground, the blade, the bud, the full grain on the stalk. Then it is cut down, winnowed, and ground into flour. Finally, it is subjected to the fiery process of the oven. It is only after this that the bread has completed its mission and become able to be fit to sustain life believer in Christ, such it is with the bread of heaven. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off of the land of the living. He was subjected to the fiery process of the wrath of God as he took our place in holy judgment. As the timeless hymn rings out, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you know what Jesus did? He took my sins and my sorrows and He made them His very own. He bore them to the burden of Calvary and He suffered and He died alone. God forbid that we should ever lose the wonderment over it all. The Holy One of God made a curse for us that it pleased the Lord to bruise His Son and that in order that He might be the bread of life for us, He gave His life again to the judgment of God in a sense on the cross when the wrath of God, more so than the judgment, right? When the wrath of God was borne down on the person of Christ. Let us then feed upon Him. Let us draw from His infinite fullness. Let us ever press forward into a more intimate fellowship with Him. Jesus Christ, the bread of life. So this morning, what I want to do as we look at these verses together is give you three truths about Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven. Number one, if you're taking notes, this is all in your outline there in your bulletin this morning. But number one, Jesus is the bread of life. That's kind of the whole theme, right, for this uh, discourse of Christ throughout the end of chapter 6 and for our sermon here today in verse 35. And what I want to do is give you four facts about this statement where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Here's what Jesus is saying. Number one, your first blank is, he's referring to the divinity of Christ. He's referring to the fact that he is divine. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's talking about his divinity. Now if you remember at the end of last week's sermon we looked at how the unbelieving Jews were comparing Jesus to Moses. And Jesus may have fed the 5000, but we discussed how some of them were saying, "Yeah, but our fathers, you know, brought down bread from heaven," and make no doubt about it, they were talking about Moses, and they were kind of saying to Jesus, "Well, will show us another sign that we should believe in you because Moses kind of outdid you. You might have fed 5000, but Moses fed 2 million people in the wilderness. You had five loaves and two fish. But Moses made bread just appear out of heaven, and he fed again the entire nation of Israel. And so they're kind of saying, Jesus, you got to do something bigger and something better for us to believe in you. And Jesus reminded them at the end of last week's sermon, right? He's reminding them, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In the verse right before that, he says to them, truly, I truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, but my father. Right? So Jesus is reminding them, look, it's not about Moses. It's about God. It's not about Moses's power. It's about God's power. It's not about Moses's grace. It's about God's grace. It wasn't that they should thank Moses and be enamored with him. They should thank God and be worshiping him. Jesus, the true bread of heaven, is infinitely superior to the manna that came down from heaven. And we ended last week saying that so many Christians are still looking for the manna instead of looking to Christ. The manna was a shadow of things to come. Jesus is infinitely more valuable. The manna from heaven is not the bread of God. Not in the ultimate sense. This true bread from heaven is a reference to Christ Himself. The manna was not the true bread from heaven. Christ is. The manna will only sustain the human body for a day. But when you need to uh, eat it again, you have to eat again each day, where Christ will sustain you for all eternity. And when Christ says that he's the true bread, this word true means real or genuine. The manna was again a shadow to point to Christ. The manna was perishable, but Christ is imperishable. And Jesus says a little bit later in this same sermon, look down at verse 58, Here in chapter 6, he says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So again, Jesus continues to make the comparison. The manna was good, and it sustained you for a while, and it was a gift from God, but it wasn't the ultimate gift of salvation. Now you need Christ. And while Moses provided bread for the Israelites who were in the wilderness, Jesus provides bread for the whole world. Moses was just responsible in a sense as a deliverer, not the deliverer, but as a deliverer to take care of the nation of Israel. Jesus, in a much greater sense, offers Himself not only to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. And so the idea is is that Jesus is focused on believers from every ethnicity and from every background. Jesus gives life to the world. It matters not where you're coming from or where you have been. Come to Christ, the bread of life. It matters not what you have done or what you've thought about doing, come to this bread of life. It matters not if you are a rebel who has broken the law or a self-righteous Pharisee who's made up your own law. I call you today to come partake of this bread. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, He gives this first of the seven formal I am statements in the Gospel of John, all pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Each one of these statements in John contain what we call in Greek the ego, I, me statement. Just simply in Greek, the statement of Christ saying, I am. And that is undoubtedly a reference to what the Father, Yahweh, in the same sense, revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush experience. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out in the wilderness, and he sees a burning bush that's not being consumed, and it catches his attention, and he walks up to it, and the Lord says, take off your sandals for your own holy ground. And the Lord goes on to tell Moses that he needs to take his staff, go back to Egypt, and to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And then Moses said to God, Exodus three thirteen, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is basically saying, who shall I say sent me? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, God needs no credential. God needs no padded effort to make his name greater than it really already is. I am that I am. I Am is going to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And in a much greater way, Christ is the I Am who delivers us, the sinner, from our sin and our bondage so that we can be in relationship with God the Father. And so Jesus is claiming to be one with God. He's claiming to be all-powerful, all-loving, and all-wise. He is claiming to be God. In fact, if you'll look over at John chapter 8, John chapter 8, you remember there's kind of comparison, comparing him to Moses. He goes back and makes this claim. Jesus said to them in John eight fifty eight, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham I am. So it's before, not, not only before Moses, but it's before Abraham ever was, I am. Am. These are again statements of Christ claiming to be divine. It's the same statement in a sense in John 10:30 where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It's the same statement in the high priestly prayer of John 17:11 when Jesus says that they may be one even as we are one. So, what I'm trying to say to you this morning is this: if you want to be nourished, By the bread of life, it begins with you recognizing and responding to this statement of the divinity of Christ. If you don't see Him as Christ, He will not fill or satisfy your soul. If you see Him only as a man, or only as a prophet, or only as a religious leader, but not as the bread of heaven, you'll never be filled. And so the idea is, is that we need to come to recognize Jesus for who He really is. And this ought to immediately make us want to bow down and worship Him as our Lord and our God. It it, it ought to make us want to ascribe to Jesus all glory and power and majesty. This ought to make us realize that it is Jesus that gives us joy and great hope and promises for tomorrow. And because Jesus is divine, He's worthy of glory and worthy of honor and worthy of praise. A second heart to this I am, the bread of life statement that we can learn here this morning by observation is not only is it referring to the divinity of Christ, but it's referring to the vitality of Christ, the vitality of Christ. Notice Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. And that's a reference to vitality. This means that without Christ, you're eating dead bread that perishes. But with Christ, you're eating a bread that will help you live forever. Skip down to verse 50. In 51, you see it here where Jesus continues on this theme throughout this discourse. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. In other words, if you eat of this bread, you are going to live. It's impossible to eat of this bread and not be alive. Why? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for uh, and the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He, here's what Jesus is saying. His body is the bread. And when his body was crucified on the cross, he made an atonement for our sins. And when he was raised from the, from the dead to newness of life, he shows that he has authority over death, and he has authority over the grave, and he has authority over the devil, and he alone can save you. But you must come to him. He is the bread. He alone gives life. And when he was raised from the dead, we're now to continue to partake of this bread. And what's happening in the world is the world is laughing at the idea of eternity because in the hearts of man, it's all about this life. And so when we think about vitality in the here and now, we just simply think about how healthy can we be, right? On, on the website help.com, it gives these suggestions about how you can have a healthier, longer life. By just making a few changes in your lifestyle, you can live Longer. A recent study found that four bad behaviors—smoking, drinking, too much alcohol, not exercising, and not eating enough fruits and veggies—can hustle you into an early grave and, in effect, age you by as much as 12 years. Now, here's what—it's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I—I would agree. Let's try to live more healthy lives, right? But the point is that that's all you got. This is like the focus of the here and now is to look better, feel better live longer, and have less wrinkles. That's the whole focus of our culture. In fact, here are some tips from Harvard Medical School. Don't smoke. Enjoy physical and mental activities every day. Eat a healthy diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, and fruits. Take a daily multivitamin. Maintain a healthy weight and body shape. Challenge your mind. Keep learning and trying new activities. Build a strong social network. Follow preventative care and screening guidelines. Floss, which we all do regularly. Don't we, church? Uh, floss, uh, brush, and see a dentist regularly. Ask your doctor if the medication that you're taking really helps you uh, control potential lifelong side effects of chronic conditions such as high blood pressure, osteoporosis, or high cholesterol. And again, those are great details, except for flossing. But uh, those are great details about how to live a long life, right? But who cares? Like in one sense, it's like, that's not what it's about. And if your whole life is focused on this life and you're not partaking of the bread of heaven, you've missed the whole point. I mean, you understand we're not talking about a difference of a lifespan of 12 years. We're talking about where you're going to spend eternity. We're talking about coming to Christ, who is the bread of life. He offers Zoe kind of life, the eternal life. The the abundant life. It's the kind of life Jesus talks about in John ten ten. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And so I'm asking you this morning, church: Do you want to have a life transformation? Do you want to live a little bit longer in this life? I mean, I do, but to, that's only a degree of my emphasis. Though, if we're spending all of our time on that and not on eternal life, then we're missing the whole point. And so we've got to look to Christ. If you want our life to count, look to Christ. If you want to have a true quality of life, look for Christ. If you want to live forever, look to Christ. And so we're seeing here in this statement that I am the bread of life statement, the divinity of Christ, the vitality of Christ. There's a third thing we could look at here and that would be the accessibility of Christ. The fact that He's accessible to all. Notice how He says here in verse 35, I am the bread of life and whoever comes and a little bit later, whoever believes. So Jesus says, whoever comes and whoever believes. It is true that the Bible teaches that uh, in its most famous verse of John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus did say this because he means what he says. Whoever you are, if you come to him, you will have eternal life. It's the emphasis again of, of uh, verse 33 here, chapter 6, that he offers himself uh, to the world, to anybody in the world. And part of what we're learning here is that Jesus extends his invitation to whosoever will come and to whosoever will believe. All are invited to come to faith in Christ. Romans ten thirteen says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts two twenty one says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Acts seventeen thirty says that he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so while we may believe in the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination that I'm actually going to get to in just a moment here, the idea is there is a call to all people everywhere to come. If you come to Christ, you will be saved. We see again here in verse 35 though that there are two qualifications in this same verse by which you must come to Him. This is not teaching universalism. It doesn't say every human being will be saved regardless of what they do or how they live or where they put their trust. No, He says what? All those who come. Whoever comes and whoever believes. And so let's look at these two statements. You've got to come and you've got to believe. It doesn't matter who you are. If you don't come and if you don't believe, you're not getting in. You could be a pastor's son or daughter. You could be a master's university student. You could have heard every sermon that John MacArthur has ever preached. But if you don't come and you don't believe in Christ, you will not get into heaven and you will not be saved. And so this word come is the Greek word erikomai. Eikomai, and it simply means this, quote, movement from one point to another. Close quote. No, I like that. I like that because that defines exactly what coming is. Coming is you moving from where you are to where God wants you to be. It's like if I were standing in an open room and I were to bid you to come to me. What I'm saying is you must walk from where you are at the back of the room to the front of the room. You must move from one point to another point in order to come. If I were to say to my kids, come, jump in the van. I'm going to take you to Magic Mountain today. What what do we got to do to get to Magic Mountain? They've got to come. If they don't come and they don't get in the car, no magic mountain today. I'm sorry. You missed out because you didn't come, right? So there is this idea of coming, but there's also the idea of believing. And believing, as far as the Bible's concerned, is more than just a mental decision. To believe also demands active trust and commitment to the one in whom you believe. To have faith or to believe always includes these three elements. First, you've got to have knowledge. In order to believe, you have to know what it is you're believing in. You have to understand the gospel. You have to understand the fact that you are a sinner, that God is a holy God, that you can only be made right through Christ and His death and His righteousness that has to be imputed to your account, that, that you must repent and believe. This is the truth of the gospel. And if you don't know that, how can you really believe? And so in order to believe, you must first have knowledge. Secondly, you must have assent. In other words, it means that you must agree with the knowledge that you have. You can't just say, yeah, I believe that in a general sense. You must have conviction. You must have a change in the will of where you now are affirming that what you believe is definitely true. The third component of believing, knowledge, assent, is trust. You must trust. This means you must put your whole life in His hands. You must lean in to Christ. You can't just say you believe It ought to be demonstrated in all of your life by truly putting your life in His life. And so what we're seeing here is that in verse 35, Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life and whoever comes and whoever believes uh, will have eternal life. And so I say to you this morning, if you are a child this morning, I call you, to come to Christ and to believe in Him. If you're a college student, I call you to come to Christ and to believe in Him. If you're a a young professional out in the workforce, I call you to come believe in Christ. If you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa this morning, I call you to come and to believe in Christ. Jesus is accessible to all who will come to Him and to believe with the eyes of faith that He is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He was raised... From the dead, and that He alone is your life. There's accessibility for whoever comes, whoever believes. And not only do we see the divinity of Christ and the the vitality of Christ and the accessibility, one last point here, we see the superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ. Notice what it says at the end of verse 35 If you come, you shall never hunger. If you believe, you will never thirst. Well, what a great offer this is. If you you come and believe, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. All that to say, nothing in this world compares to Jesus. And oftentimes, we hunger and thirst after things that we think that we have to have right away or at some point in our lives in order to be satisfied. And they're not always bad things. For example, you could hunger or thirst to, to graduate from college one day, to own your own home, to, to get married or to have a family. Or you could hunger or thirst to drive a nicer, newer car or to have your favorite team win the championship or to go on an exotic vacation. It's not all bad. I mean, we do many of these things. But if that becomes the point of your life, it will not satisfy you. You will keep hungering and you will keep thirsting. None of these things will ever satisfy you like Christ. And so I hope that your main sacrifice in your life is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know we sacrifice for all those things I just mentioned? We get up early. We stay up late. We get a second job. We burn the candle at both ends. We do whatever it takes in this, in this you know, dog-eat-dog dog world to get ahead, right? Because we think that'll make us happy. And yet when it comes to our Christian life, we kind of sit back, we kind of coast, oh, I don't have time for church on Sunday, don't have time to read my Bible today, and we just begin to coast. And the problem is we're no longer satisfied because you're pulling out of Christ and you're getting hooked on the things of this world. And so if that's you this morning, or if you've ever struggled with that, I know I have, I've got two parables for you. And they're super short. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 13. These two parables teach about the immeasurable value of the kingdom of heaven as compared to this world. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the, the, uh, the two parables here of, of the kingdom of heaven will be compared. Look at Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that filth. Now, you've heard that parable before. One verse, super easy. All right, this parable is talking about. One day, in everyday life, this person seemed to be minding his own business and he's walking out in this field and all of a sudden, he kind of stumbles upon this treasure that would be his if he were only to buy that field. And so, he has to give up everything else in order to buy that field. But notice how the verse says that it was his joy to do that. I mean, you would think... Like, why would that be challenging for him to do that? It's not. It's a joy because he knows that that treasure is of far greater value than what he already has. And the point of the parable was really this. It is no sacrifice. I mean, think about it. If you were going to buy a plot of land and somehow you stumbled upon a treasure and you open it up and let's say it was a billion dollars, and then you were to think, "Ah, in order to get that billion dollars, I have to sell everything I have. How many of you would be like, oh, it's going to be so hard. You know, i got to sell my house. got to sell my car, all my clothes. got to sell it all. Are you, for a billion dollars? Like, I would just give away all my stuff, right? Because you're going to get so much more. And the whole point is, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is, we claw and crave for the things that somehow we already have, and they never satisfy. But Christ, in all of His glory, is a much greater treasure than you can ever imagine. And the whole point of the parable is, that He's greater than, than what you already have. And make it your joy to give up what you have in order to obtain something greater. The second parable is just like it. It's twice as long. It's Two verses. Verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the parable teaches the same theme, which is heaven or eternal life is like that, that pearl of great price. Now, don't misunderstand. These two parables are not teaching that you literally have to pay for uh, your salvation or pay to get into heaven. That, that's not what we're learning here. No, heaven is free for all those who call upon the Lord. Salvation is a free gift. These parables are not teaching how much you need to give to be saved. They are teaching how much you need to give up to be saved. Not about what you need to go out and do. It's just kind of showing you need to come to the end of yourself and give up your own effort, your own work, in order to get something greater. So in one sense, there's nothing you could ever do to buy Christ or to buy heaven, but in another sense, it costs you your life. It's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You understand what's being said here? He's trying to shake us and to wake us up and say, who wants to lose your life? so what? There's magazines and articles about how you can live 12 years longer. I'm here to help you live forever. People ask me sometimes why I gave up being a PA, you know, to go into the ministry and I gave them, you know, always give them Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, which is, I got tired of helping people live longer so they could sin more. And I wanted to help people live forever where they never sin again. Now, isn't that a much better business to be in? But we have the opportunity to help people see the futility of life, the futility of what you already have, because it doesn't satisfy. It does not quench your thirst. And so the idea here from what we're learning is those things won't do the trick. Right? Only Christ can satisfy. Only He can fill your longings. Only Jesus can bring you true and lasting joy. Only Jesus can save you from yourself. Come to Christ today and slake your thirst. And satiate your hunger by being filled once and for all on the true bread of life. Now that's the first point. Let's just get to the second heading here. And we'll have to save probably the third heading for next week. Because here's what we're getting into. And our second point is Jesus is available to all who come. I know it's a restatement in some ways of Him being accessible to all, but what we're learning in verse 36 and 37 is He is truly available to all who come. Your next blank says this, many will see and yet not believe. Many will see and yet not believe. Look there at verse 36. Jesus is talking here. says, but I say to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. And I want to know why. I want to know why it is that so many people see the same Christ you see, the same Christ I see, and yet they don't believe. And so in a way here, Jesus is rebuking the crowd for seeing him and yet not believing in him. And Jesus is also saying this isn't the first time they're having this conversation. In fact, if you look back at chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 38 and 40, we see Jesus already saying the same thing. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In this context, Jesus is saying that even though the Jews searched the Scriptures, they had not come to the proper conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And so they don't really have the Word abiding in them because they're not receiving Christ, who is the Word, into their own hearts and into their own lives. Seeing is not always believing. Just because you see doesn't mean you will believe it. People says uh, people saw, excuse me, Jesus do miracles and they still didn't believe. They saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead and they still didn't believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. It's really the opposite that's true. When God gives someone the ability to believe with their eyes of faith, they can for the first time see Christ in all of His glory as the Lamb of God who came to save His people from their sins. So seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. You ever been so frustrated that you're trying to witness to your neighbor or your family member and you're just laying it out there as good as you can? I mean, you're a better evangelist than Billy Graham. And somehow they just look at what you're saying and they just can't see it. And and it gets you so frustrated. Well, just remember that the reason they can't see it is because they lack ability. They lack ability. And this kind of moves us to our next point here. All the Father gives to Jesus will come. All the Father gives to Jesus will come. Verse 37. This is what must happen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, hear what's going on here. Despite the crowd's response, Jesus is not deterred, he is not discouraged, he is not in disarray. Jesus is devoted to his mission. Jesus is determined to do exactly what the Father has called Him to do. Jesus is dead set on saving all those who come to Him. The question that should be asked here is who comes? Who is it that's going to come? Who is it that's going to believe? And the answer here in verse 37 is given to us. It's all that the Father gives me. That's who comes. All that the Father gives me will come. Now notice, this is not a statement of potential. This is not a statement of probability. This is not a statement of possibility. This is a statement of sovereign control, sovereign power, sovereign grace, sovereign enabling, and sovereign election. This idea of the Father giving to the Son those whom He will is consistently seen throughout this Gospel. This theme of the Father giving to the Son. It's in John 6, thirty nine and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of those that he has given me it's in john ten twenty nine my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father 's hand it's john seventeen two since you have given him authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. John 17:6 I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. John 17:9 I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 17:24 Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What we're saying is that here in the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, Jesus says, those who come are those the Father has already given to me. What we're really talking about here is the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. It's the idea that that God chose you before the foundation of the world, that He elected you. In the classic Calvinistic tulip Acronym, the idea is unconditional election, that he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And this is obviously a very controversial question in the church at large today, as many people really struggle with the question did you choose God or did God choose you? right? What does the Bible really teach? The Bible clearly teaches, I believe, that, that God chose you. I mean, a lot of times we'll say, well, they're both true. Well, in a sense, they're both true, but that doesn't mean in chronological order it happened at the same time, because it didn't. One happened way before the other, and it is a, you and I have the responsibility not just to go off of our Western mindset or this free will plague in our culture that somehow we think we have, but rather we've got to come to the Word of God. We're responsible to come to God's Word. Now listen to me. I grew up as an Arminian. So did all of you. That's, that's how we are when, when we're born in our own depraved state. We assume what's fair is fair. Everybody's got a fair chance. And as I grew up in a Methodist church initially, and then a charismatic church after that, and then after that a Southern Baptist Arminian church, I've been taught my whole life that I chose Christ first. And that somehow what the doctrine of election and predestination means is that God went back down through the corridors of time and somehow after he saw I would choose him in real life here in this world, that he actually went back and chose me based on his foreknowledge that I would eventually choose him. That's a bunch of malarkey. I'm just telling you, it is. It is. As you begin to study your Bible, you'll realize that doesn't hold a candle in the light of Scripture. And as you begin to study the Bible, you begin to understand, I believe, and be persuaded of the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination as they are to really be understood. And as I was struggling through these doctrines in college, I remember one time getting so frustrated. And I pulled out all my favorite Arminian authors and their books on this subject all of the the new Calvinistic readings that I was doing and trying to understand their argument on the subject. And I remember just studying this for months. And one afternoon, I told my mom, I was still living at home. I was finishing up my PA board exams and I had a little break. And I told my mom, I said, I'm going into my bedroom and I'm going to figure out whether God chose me or I chose him. And I'm not coming out until I figure this out. I am sick and tired of this going back and forth in my head. And my mom was looking at me and she's like, you might be in there till Jesus comes back. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, I'm not coming out until I figure it out. So I go in there and sure enough, I reread all the things I'd marked and highlighted in my Arminian books. And I read, read all the stuff I'd marked and highlighted in my Calvinistic books. And I finally just said, forget all this. It's just a bunch of church history, just a bunch of theologians. What do they know? And I come back to my Bible that was between the two stacks on my bed. And I just started reading and reading and reading. And here's where I read. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is what I believe that the Lord in His sovereign revelation makes clear to all those who are in Christ. It's just simply like sometimes we've got to forget church history and just like, well, what does the Bible say? I didn't say really forget church history. There's great importance there, but I'm saying it's not authority, right? The Bible is authority. And so in Ephesians 1 verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, how much clearer could it be? I mean, in verse 4, it says that He chose us when? After He knew we would choose Him somehow in the future. Is that what it says? If you just go off the Bible, no, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption. Verse 11, look at eleven of Ephesians. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. As we do an honest assessment of Ephesians chapter 1, it's impossible for you to leave there. And I've had Christians tell me, I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. I'm like, how can you not believe that? I mean, it's it's right here in the scripture. Now, of course, they redefine what they would mean by the doctrine of predestination or election that is, I believe, different than what this text teaches. Or turn with me, if you will, to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. I know this isn't a full address of this topic, so... In one sense, I apologize. In another sense, I don't apologize. Right, we need a little bit more of Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 in our life. And so the idea here in Romans 9 is there's this argument going on in Paul's mind as he's working through the Romans, uh, with the Romans, about how they need to understand this doctrine of election. So we'll have to skip all the way to verse 11. And it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we have to deal with that in one way or another. And I think verse 11 explains exactly what's going on when he says, look, this is all about God's purpose. How about God's sovereign will to do whatever He wants for His own glory and according to His purpose of election, not because of your work, or Jacob, or Esau's work, but because of Him who calls. In fact, it was before they had done anything good or bad. It's so that God's purpose could stand. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. Verse 14. Something about that makes us want to argue. We say, well, that's not fair. In our free country, in our Western mindset, we're like, how can He do that? Who does He think He is? Well... Paul anticipates that complaint. And so in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So in other words, we want to feel like that's unjust. Surely he's not saying that. And actually, he's saying, look, God's not unjust. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know what God's Word is teaching? It doesn't matter what your will is. God will change your will to His will if He chooses to have mercy on you and to have compassion on you. And He can do that whenever He wants, however He wants, to whoever He wants, and He does that for His own glory. And the idea here is sure, from our human standpoint, I understand it's a little bit Uh, much to to, to comprehend. Uh, Why why do we struggle with this? Because it's so difficult from just a human perspective to be like, yeah, but, yeah, but, but the Bible says whosoever comes. And I'm like, amen, it does say whosoever comes. But you can only come if you've been given by the Father to the Son. You, You remember, you were dead, Ephesians 2, in your trespasses and sins. It's Colossians 2.13. He's got to make you alive together with Christ. Dead people don't come. Dead people can't believe. Your will is, is thwarted where there's none righteous. No, not one that we've already read today. And so the idea here is that God has to do this work. And this is what Jesus himself is teaching. So back to John 6, he's saying basically that these people had been exposed to Jesus and they had sat under his teaching and they had seen his miracles. So why didn't they believe? Because they lacked the ability. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. And it must be God who is going to make them alive. And he does this by opening our heart to the gospel. This must be done by God. All that the Father gives me will come. This is what R.C. Sproul writes on this verse. "Quote The vast majority of Christians today are what we call semi-Pelagian or Arminian in their theology. They read the statement of Jesus this way all who come to me, the Father will also give to me. That's Arminianism. We come, we decide, then the Father recognizes our decision and makes us a gift to his Son. But that's not the way Jesus taught it. Jesus said, the ones whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And it infers every one of them. Close quote. And so what we're learning again is the order of the statement is very clear. The Father gives to the Son, and all that the Father gives to the Son through predestination and election are going to be received by the Son as He regenerates our souls and makes us alive together with Him. And so it is true that you can only come if God calls you. And it's also true, and this is our last blank for this morning, that whoever comes will never be cast out. Whoever comes will never be cast out. Notice the end of verse 37. Whoever comes, I will never cast out. And I mean whoever means whoever. Anyone in the world who comes to Christ. You could be a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. You could be moral or immoral. You could have been in church your whole life or just shown up this morning. You could be from our culture or any culture around the world. You could be any color, any ethnicity, and from any nation. But if you come, only God can enable you to come. So if you come, and it's only by His enablement that you're able to to partake of this bread. And if you come, it's got to be out of sincerity and out of a genuine heart change and out of honesty. And if you come, which only God can help you come that way, to make you come that way, if you come, Jesus says He'll never cast you out. Ever. So we've been talking about the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of eternal security. And this is where we'll pick up next week. The idea that if you come, you can never be thrown out. Because if you're His, you're His. Now skip down with me, if you will, to the take-home section. And you can at least uh, fill in a couple of these things to chew on a little bit. Number one, are you being nourished by the bread of life? Are you being nourished today by the bread of life? This could be the first time that you've ever taken part of Christ by being saved This could also be the idea of you being daily dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ, day in and day out, so that you don't become sickly in your sanctification. You must come to Christ today. He's the bread of life one time, and He's the bread of life each day and every day for the rest of your life. Are you being nourished on Him? Are you coming to Christ? Don't depend on your mom or your dad or a Bible teacher or a blog or a sermon or a preacher or anything else. I want you to come to Christ. And today you must come to Him to be truly nourished. Second, have you truly come to the Father through the Son? And you remember our definition of come is you must move from one point to another. And I'm saying only God can make you move like that. But at the same point, there's this invitation, there's this command for you to do what only God can enable you to do. The last blank would be this. If you have looked on the Son, have you also believed in Him? And next week, we're going to talk about the difference between looking on Him and believing in Him. But for for today, I call you to come to Christ who is the bread of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to jump into your word today and to study John 6 as we're kind of in a little bit over our head. In some ways, there's such a depth to the teaching of Christ as we consider the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. As we look at his divinity and as we look at his accessibility and as we look at the sustenance and the life that Christ provides, as we consider the fact that the Father gives to the Son, all those that he calls to himself, that that, that, uh, Jesus says a little bit later in the same chapter, that no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so today, God, I pray that you would give us a healthy, robust, and biblical view of the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of eternal security. We desire to be those Christians that, yes, are balanced and fair to all parts of the Bible, but also see rising to the top this thread, this theme of your sovereign work in the life of every person. And so we pray, God, that You would save whom You will for Your own glory. And at the same time, we'd be faithful to evangelize the lost and to pray for our sinning neighbors and family members and that we would be unashamed of the gospel and that we would make every day count as we beg people to come and to consider Christ and call them out of darkness into light. But You do the work, Lord. We depend upon You. And we acknowledge that it's Your power. It's Your sovereign choice. It's Your prerogative to extend mercy to whom You will extend mercy, and to extend compassion, to whom You will extend compassion. And so God, we pray that as we wrestle through these things, that Your Spirit would be our ultimate teacher, that Your Word would be alive in our hearts, that we would be comforted by Your love today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.